0: Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kynos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara.
1: And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, there was this viral TikTok video that has been circulating online. And you know that it is really getting traction by the fact that I have heard about it. And I am not on TikTok. I don't have a TikTok. And um, you don't visit the TikTok. I do not. I th- I downloaded the app when it first came out. And when uh, I opened it and it was a full volume video on my screen, I was like, Ugh! and I just closed out of it and I never went back to it again.
0: Yeah. You have no other option than to participate at full volume, right? Yeah. That's the way the app functions.
1: Well, I'm sure you can turn the volume down, but it, but was, so, you, it was so jarring. That I was like, I want out of this. Yeah. I don't you want can't it.
0: silence it though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm pretty, yeah, I think you can silence you. You just turn your volume all the way down. Like, you can do that. Okay. But I just wasn't ready for the experience. Anyways, I saw a TikTok video, but I didn't see it on TikTok. I saw it on X, formerly Twitter.
0: Which is where you often live.
1: Yes, yeah. And it was this video of a progressive Christian minister named uh, Brandon Robertson. Uh, whenever I see his name, I want to call him Brandon because it's it's spelled B-R-A-N-D-A-N, but it's Brandon. Not Brandon. Brandan. Not Brandon. So it's uh, Brandon Robertson. And um, he's kind of a significant figure online. Uh, and he first kind of came to the national scene in 2014, shortly after he graduated from Moody Bible Institute. And actually, that same year, he was part of a coalition of folks who were trying to convinced the Southern Baptist Convention to support gay marriage. So pretty much immediately after graduating from Moody Bible Institute, he kind of theologically moved away from some of the convictions of that institution and was trying to convince the SBC to do the same. He himself is also a gay man, so he kind of has a vested interest in that movement. Uh, And kind of later on, even though he kind of started in an evangelical space, Robertson, he, he broke ties with evangelicals entirely. And he became a uh, a progressive Christian. And now that, that phrase has a, a specific meaning and it's part of a specific movement. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, this video that we'll talk about, it kind of showcases a lot of those beliefs uh, pretty succinctly. Um, and you'll kind of see like what exactly that all means as this conversation unfolds. And really what Robertson said in that video, it wasn't new when it comes to progressive Christianity, uh, but it is gaining a new audience uh, on TikTok. And particularly a much younger audience, as Robertson himself is a fairly young man. I he think he's like the same age as me. And he um, is, he looks younger than me.
0: He does. And as I'm like sitting here, he laughing. looks significantly younger <laughs> than me.
1: And, you know, he has this broad audience on TikTok. Uh, and what it boils down to um, in this conversation that he has kind of brought up is how Christians are to understand the relationship between Jesus and Paul, the Apostle Paul, and whether Paul's words carry as much weight in our Bibles as uh, the words of Jesus himself. So that's kind of the question that's at stake uh, in this video that will, that will play uh, the audio for you, uh, as well as in progressive Christianity as a whole. So that's what I want to talk about today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. So today we are talking about a viral TikTok video because that is just the state of, of theological discourse in America right now that we must discuss TikTok videos as they come across our feed.
0: Well, I know like it, you say that in kind of like a funny way, but the reality is um, there's some traction um, happening around this video and as we think about where uh, people are getting information from. The younger generation is actually getting information from TikTok. So it, it, it's important that we're having this conversation as like half-heartedly joking. We are about like, oh, we're talking about TikTok. But considering uh, people are going to TikTok, it is a way of discipling a generation. It's important to have this conversation.
1: Right. Yeah. we're We're having a theological discussion at a serious level. Uh, about something some guy said on a TikTok video, but what some guy said on a TikTok video is shaping the theology of many within an entire generation. So I thought that uh, we would play a a portion of that clip for for the audience here, just so that we're not trying to summarize the whole thing or maybe like misrepresenting what he said. And the original video is about four minutes long, and we'll link to the whole thing in the show notes. Uh, But I kind of clipped out the middle part uh, that I thought was the most interesting for us to respond to here. And so this video was apparently taken at Robertson's Church, which is Mission Gathering Christian Church in San Diego. He's the pastor there. And he's uh, responding to some questions as part of a Q&A, and the topic of Jesus and Paul comes up. So here is that clip.
2: Because if you grew up in conservative evangelicalism, you probably grew up in Pauline Christianity where Paul is more quoted and more followed than Jesus. And this is something I've been studying a lot recently, actually, because it is perplexing to me how even in all of my theology degrees, um, it was all centered on Paul and figuring out how to teach the church about Paul's theology to the detriment of what Jesus said. And I actually don't know if you know this, but if you read the New Testament, you find that Paul and Jesus often come into contradiction with each other. And a couple things about Paul that should be said. Paul never met Jesus, never heard Jesus preach. Paul only knows Jesus through secondhand knowledge. So as we're reading the writings of the Apostle Paul, we need to know who he is. We need to know his context. He's removed from Jesus himself. And Paul and Jesus are preaching two different Gospels. The message of Jesus was quite simple. God is doing a new thing in the world. God is calling us to a new way of living in the world. And Jesus' gospel is primarily social and ethical. It was about a new way of living, a new standard of justice. How do we live in a more just and generous world? How do we create a better world that benefits everyone? Paul's gospel was primarily theological. Who was Jesus? Why was he important? Both are necessary again. But at mission gathering, we we really center. I try to center in all of my teaching on the four gospels, what Jesus actually said, what he actually did, and we use Paul as uh, a support for that message. But if Paul and Jesus ever come into contradiction, we're going to side with Jesus every time.
1: Okay, so there was a lot in there. Um. But before I kind of open the floor for discussion for us, I just wanted to uh, point out a couple of really inaccurate things that he just kind of floated as though they were self-evident truths. Uh, And if you didn't know that, you're like, you would think, you know, he's making a really compelling argument. But a lot of the things that are serving as the premises for that argument, uh, just as a point of fact, are not accurate. So uh, there's like three of them. And I'll take them thematically rather than sequentially in the order that he said them, uh, just because it's um, it's a little bit easier to wrap our arms around it that way. Uh, but the first is that Robertson said that Paul never met Jesus and that everything Paul knew about Jesus came secondhand. And that is if you take the authority of Scripture, he says, well, if you read the New Testament, well, I read the New Testament and Paul met Jesus in that.
0: Right. Um, That's his conversion
1: story. Yeah. So if we look at Acts 9, his conversion story, uh, he literally comes face to face with the risen and glorified Christ. That encounter changed the trajectory of his life. It also blinded him. But he personally had an interaction with Jesus, incarnate, risen, glorified Jesus. And that is, you know, clear as day in uh, the Acts account. And then if you go to Galatians, in Galatians uh, 1, Paul gives kind of his own firsthand account of that very same story, and he even gives a little bit more detail. And I'll read that text to you. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it's important for you to see that it's all there. This is Galatians 1, verses 11 through 20. Uh, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man. He didn't get a second hand, nor was it I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age, and among my people, I was uh, extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. But when God who set me apart uh, from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. This is important. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but instead I went to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Then three, after three years, Three years, after three years, he hasn't talked to any of the people in the Christian movement, uh, any of the apostles. He says, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. So by Luke's account and by Paul's own account, uh, while Paul wasn't hanging out with the the 12 disciples during Jesus's three-year ministry— it it might be possible that Paul spent more time with the risen Jesus than literally anybody on earth because there was that, what was he doing that three years? If he wasn't talking to anybody, he says he got that directly as a revelation from Jesus Christ.
0: Right. And you already said that we see it in acts, which was not written by Paul. It was written by Luke. Uh, and so we actually see, It being supported by the early church and being understood by the early church and it being supported even by the initial followers of Jesus, the disciples who walked with him. So they are also affirming what happened in uh, Peter's conversion story of seeing Jesus face to face. Right. So like. In every which way you can look at the authority of this story and the confirmation of what happened with Peter, you are seeing it affirmed over and over again by different authorities within the beginning movement of Christianity.
1: Right. So Paul meant Jesus. He yes. didn't get it from secondhand. Okay. The second thing, uh, Robertson, he said that Paul oftentimes comes into contradiction with Jesus and that Paul and Jesus were preaching two different gospels. And so for that, I would refer you to the text that we just read. Uh, in Galatians, to see how that's a mischaracterization, uh, Paul got his message directly from jesus in in fact that 's what makes him authoritative as an apostle, like whether we should listen to him at all hinges on the fact that he personally met Jesus uh the only people in the early church who were considered to have Uh, authoritative Christian teaching were those who received what they said directly and personally from Jesus and who were commissioned by him. And so that is why Paul is an apostle. That's why Peter uh, recognized him as an apostle. That's why all the other apostles recognized him as an apostle, and that's why all of the church recognized him as an authoritative source of Christian teaching, and that's why the 13 letters that he wrote, that's why they received those as authoritative texts from the moment that Paul sent them. And so uh, everything that is taught in the Christian church as orthodox teaching in the past 2,000 years has not... uh, Complete authority, but it has derived authority from the authoritative words and texts written by the apostles, and so that's how we have the New Testament. Uh, so it, it's a mischaracterization to say that they are preaching two different gospels if he's getting that gospel directly from Jesus. And so um, anything that that contradicts the words of Jesus or his personal apostles has been deemed heretical but jesus from the the start of the church and the apostles have always been seen in the christian tradition as speaking with one voice
0: right and that just goes back to like how did we get the bible like the canon in which we're reading today within the christian church it has to have certain parameters met and this being a really big one is it's kind of the big one right like (laughs) the authority in which the the person uh recounting what was happening um had to meet this criteria and that being uh it couldn't just be second third fourth hand hey i'm writing this down uh they had to actually be connected to jesus and so for the early church to uh, even accept Paul's writings at all, it had to fit this marker that he received that from Christ. And so the history of the church accepts uh, the writings of Paul because it is written with that kind of authority. Yeah. So, so for Robinson to even say that it's not like authoritative or that it's contradicting, it actually goes against the entire process of the way that we understand scripture to be um, within the canon.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, The third thing that Robertson said that was inaccurate was that, and I'd like to open the floor for more discussion on this, is that Jesus's gospel was primarily social and ethical, while Paul's gospel was primarily theological. And furthermore, he says that wherever Paul and Jesus disagree, we go with Jesus, Tamra, what is right or wrong with that teaching?
0: I mean, to initially, you're just pitting uh, Jesus and Paul against one another, and uh, you're also not seeing the whole narrative scope of what's happening within Scripture. So, even as we look at the life of Jesus, uh, and he's talking. Uh, Robinson's talking about the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like basically saying he primarily only teaches out of that because those are the words of Jesus. Well, we understand all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by man. So Jesus didn't write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. Um, So that's also like a bit of a weak spot in Robinson's argument that these are only like the words of Jesus like, yes, they are recounting what was happening through through the working of the Holy Spirit. But the same thing is also happening with what we see Paul writing. And it's this um, unfolding, all of the New Testament really, um, is this unfolding of the redemptive plan of humanity. And Christ being like the hinge point of that uh, plan of redemption. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is actually looking at uh, Jesus's life and ministry which goes into the redemptive story of humanity where Paul's focus is not on specifically uh, recounting the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the extension of everything Jesus taught. And it's an affirming back to that where Jesus is saying, look, in the whole Old Testament, you knew the Messiah was coming. I am him. That is me. Right. And so he is working within the Jewish context of people who knew the scriptures, who understood everything that was happening in the Torah, who the promised Messiah was. And he's basically saying, I am that person and I'm living that out. And you can now see that Paul isn't doing that, saying like, look, I'm the Messiah. He's pointing back to Jesus and saying, now here's the flow of all of the teaching of Jesus as well. So Paul is not contradicting Jesus and the message of Jesus.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that Robertson's like, we focus on Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in the words of Jesus, as though that's kind of hearkening back to a pre-Pauline uh, uh, era of things. What's interesting about that argument is that at least three out of the four gospel accounts were written after much of what Paul had written. And so Paul was drawing on earlier traditions and applying them in his epistles, and but but as he was doing that these gospel accounts weren't even written or circulated yet it wasn't maybe for um a decade after Paul's earliest writings that we get like Matthew and Luke and then even a decade after that we get John uh Mark was a little bit earlier it's it's tough to date some of these kinds of things but we certainly know that Paul's epistles many of them were widely circulated by the time the gospel accounts were even Written, so it's not like they were written first, and then Paul wrote his stuff after as an addendum to that. So, like the whole thing is interesting, and the, also the the gospel accounts, as you said, weren't written by Jesus, but they were written with apostolic authority, right. of which Paul was one of the apostles. And so, if we're going by what what were they using as the measuring stick to count these texts as authoritative when they began circulating in the first century? it was It was the apostolic authority, and in that case, it's the same with Matthew, who was an apostle, John who's an apostle, Peter who wrote epistles was an apostle. These were all seen as as level playing field, and they were actually written out of kind of the chronological order or the order that they are placed in our New Testament as we kind of have um ordered them thematically. Uh, in our New Testament, to, uh, and kind of combine them together. But as they were being originally written, it was you know not in the sequence that we see them now. But they were all considered authoritative at the time that they were received uh, because of the apostolic authority. Because Jesus Himself had commissioned these apostles, right? And so they had the authoritative teaching.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing um, about Robinson's argument too is that he looks to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but then what does he do with Acts? because Acts was written by Luke as well. So Luke is counted as authoritative and like the premier text. But then what is the response to Acts? Because Acts is really an extension of Luke. And it's talking about the birth of the early church. And in Acts, Acts is full of confirmation of Paul's ministry and him taking that to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world outside of just uh the Jewish community. So there's also an issue there in how do you reconcile the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, which you consider authoritative, but yet it's all affirming Paul, but then do you throw Acts out? Like I I think there's also tension there that I mean, I don't know what Robinson would say to how he views the Book of Acts.
1: Well, certainly, like cherry picking um, texts, um, because it's like creating this canon within the canon. And now we say the word canon. You think of like MCU canon. Like what? Like what is part of the you know official text that were authoritative? And that was actually uh, it wasn't determined, but it was recognized. I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts at the Council of Nicaea in three twenty five, somewhere thereabouts. Um, Because what had happened—so there were all these texts, the the 27 texts that we consider authoritative as the New Testament. They were authored and began circulating in the first century. Uh, The latest ones were probably the Book of Revelation and the Gospel according to John, uh, which uh, were—depending on which scholar you talk to, between like A.D. 70 and A.D. 90 would be probably the latest. And so they were widely circulating— um but then when you get into the middle of the 2nd century uh there were these other texts like uh the gospel according to Thomas the gospel according to Judas that weren't written by Thomas or Judas that those folks had you know long been dead uh but they were written uh pseudepigraphically and they um had these kind of apocryphal accounts of Jesus's life written by people who never met Jesus whom Jesus didn't commission Uh, who were not Jesus's uh, apostles, but were these people writing these um, uh, Gnostic uh, Gospels because they had all these kind of—the Gnosticism was this um, kind of splinter movement within the early church that uh, really was kind of mystical in nature, and they had a lot of weird things going on. Uh, But there was—so then there was the authoritative texts from the first century that were circulating to the church, and then there were all these other— Uh, non-authoritative texts that began circulating the second and third century. So when they got to Nicaea, they're like, okay, we need to gather all the authoritative texts together, put them in one codex, and then we can call that the New Testament. And so basically what they did is they weren't determining what was authoritative and wasn't authoritative. They were just um, recognizing what had already been authoritative and throwing out all those other things that were not authoritative and didn't have apostolic authority. And so that's the way we got it. And um, Robertson, he seems to either not know that history or is disregarding it um, and is coming up with some weird canon within the canon, even though uh, from the first century and then certainly when it was codified to the third century, there's never any history within the church of of them doing that.
0: Right. And you also have Peter affirming the authority of Paul within Scripture itself. Uh, so even Peter saying, Paul is the real deal. Luke is saying that as well. And we recognize the authority behind Peter and Luke.
1: Yes. So... And- so it's that's like, an interesting thing because the gospel of, of Mark was written by John Mark, who wasn't an apostle. But that text is considered authoritative because right. he was writing under the direction of Peter. But and the Robinson gospel of is the saying... God, he, yeah, and the gospel he, of Luke is authoritative because he was writing under the direction probably of Paul.
0: Right. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are considered fine within Robinson's view because they're just recounting the the life and ministry of Jesus. Like there's still, even based on his own argument that this is why Paul's out, then Luke should actually be out as well as Mark. Right. Based on his argument.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that he's saying like, oh, more than listening to the apostles, we listen to Jesus. But the only accounts that we have of Jesus were written from a theological perspective. And that theological perspective is the theology of the apostles. Right. Who, before anything was written down, got that, theology from jesus exactly and so to make this weird bifurcation you end up having to throw out the authority of everything um because it it just doesn't there's no coherent way to make that work uh, if you're looking at how um the authority of scripture uh has actually been handled and accepted uh from the first century onward so there's a lot of problems there However, what Robertson says and, and kind of this move that he's pulling is not unique to his own thinking, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit more broadly, uh, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. So this whole, like, Jesus versus Paul, the the authority of Jesus versus the authority of the apostles, uh, it's not something that is new to Robertson. He's bringing it to a new audience, but it, he's he's playing from uh kind of the greatest hits of uh, the progressive Christian movement. Uh, and when I use that word progressive, uh, in this sense, I'm not talking about like social progressivism, although uh, progressive Christians, uh, they also tend to be very socially progressive. But what I'm referring to specifically when we talk about progressive Christianity is theological progressivism. And so that is... Uh, progressing or evolving in a way theologically that kind of moves you away from the traditional Christian theology that is accepted, uh, has been accepted for the better part of 2000 years in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, and in the Protestant Church. Even though we went three separate ways uh, and have deeply different traditions, um, there are some fundamentals that make all of us Christian uh, that progressive Christians kind of seem to progress out of those things. And what's interesting about uh, the progressive Christian movement is that uh, this is going to sound really uh, derogatory, and maybe it's meant to be, but it's just the reality of what it is, uh, is that they have uh, become so innovative in their theological contemplation that they have circled all the way back to a heresy that first presented itself in the second century, mid-second century. And in the mid-second century, there was this group known as the Ibionites, and they kind of... Uh, began to emerge in uh, a couple decades into the second century. And they were this Jewish sect that believed that Paul was a heretic and needed to be rejected. And the idea was that since Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, they believed that he had corrupted the faith by trying to like Gentilize it or something. Uh, and so instead, what they believed is that Christians were to root their moral and ethical teaching in the Old Testament law, the Torah. Uh, and in the teachings of Jesus, namely the Sermon on the Mount, and they also believed a bunch of other heretical teachings too, uh, for example, they denied the virgin birth, the atonement, the divinity of Jesus, uh, so they saw Jesus not as the eternal Son of God, who incarnated and then died and rose again uh, for humanity, uh, but instead that they saw him as a human martyr who became the Messiah, you know by virtue of his teaching and his sacrifice. And called the people back to a renewed sense of repentance, a new social vision, a new way to live the Torah and bring people back to that so that God might prosper the Jewish people in the land once again. And so uh, pretty much from the moment that they came onto the scene, the Ibianites, uh their theology was rejected as heretical by the church fathers. And this is interesting because it goes back to that question of authority uh, because the church fathers, they rooted the rejection of this teaching in apostolic authority, in the authority of Paul and in the authority of the other authors of scripture who were either apostles themselves or uh, writing under the direction of an apostle. For example, uh, Irenaeus, he spoke against the Ebionites. And what's interesting about Irenaeus is that he was a student of a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp, had been discipled by a guy named the Apostle John. And so it would be like, you know, your grandfather being one of the 12 apostles. And you're saying like, I'm just saying what my grandpa said, or like kind of my spiritual grandpa, what he said, because we're literally talking about, I
2: don't know, almost 60 years from the time
1: that that John was saying, uh, giving authoritative teaching, and that that tradition is only 60 years old. And we're going directly back to the apostolic authority. And so when you look at the modern kind of progressive Christian movement, uh, it certainly doesn't have those Jewish elements that the Abianites, uh had. Um, but they, they kept that part about... Uh, the skepticism of Paul and anything that he had to say—that he was corrupting the the teachings of Jesus—and that we just have to get back to the pure teachings of Jesus. Uh, and, but what happens in that is that there's a reimagination of what Jesus actually taught. Because if you're rejecting what the people he directly commissioned to teach, um, then you're kind of coming up with this sort of new version of who Jesus actually is, and so. Progressive Christians, they see Jesus as as standing in contrast to Paul, and they see, uh, again, Jesus' uh, gospel as primarily or exclusively having social implications, like social justice and things like that, rather than cosmological implications, like the salvation of humanity in a spiritual, real sense, a new heavens and a new earth kind of sense. And so um, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, Because a lot of the motivations of progressive Christianity uh, rejecting Paul is kind of like this wanting to dial down the theology and also wanting to dial down some of the um, moral teachings of Paul that he kind of explicated in his letters that stand at odds with kind of a a progressive uh, political vision, Uh, particularly when we're uh, talking about human sexuality. For instance, you'll you often hear a progressive Christians say, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Paul had a lot to say about homosexuality on a few different occasions. And so they say, well, well, Paul's not Jesus. And so that's kind of bandied about a little bit. And there, in a certain sense, it seems like we get to the heart of the issue of uh, reading into the text what we want it to say. And right. so, t- it, Tamara, do you think it's fair to say that in many ways, progressive Christianity really is a case of the theological tail wagging the dog. Like, is it just starting with the answer that you wanted and then reverse engineering the theology to make it work?
0: Um, I think that is a really good argument, um, especially as you listen to a lot of um, people who are on the side of progressive Christianity um, even if it's not related to the like sexual ethics topic or homosexuality, um, and Jesus never said that, but Paul did, uh, there's just a lot of other things that are arguments within progressive Christianity that in more ways than not, um, a lot of people arguing for progressive Christianity are continuing to just argue what they already are saying regardless of Scripture.
1: Yeah, and you see that in other areas too, whether it's... Um a doctrine of God's judgment. Uh, yeah. The eternal judgment. You just, judgment. Want, love, you just mm-hmm. want love
0: and you don't want judgment. And then... Like
1: how could a good God could, be judgmental?
0: Right. And so you God. already have that in your mind. So you're actually going to scripture with your views and then having scripture affirm those things rather than you laying aside your... um your own personal worldview, your own way of viewing something and having scripture actually teach you. Uh, and I've, I've heard a lot of progressive Christians that, especially within the topic of um, how do we reconcile God as is perfect love, but he's also perfectly just uh, And a progressive Christian. It's like, well, you can't reconcile that because then he can only be love um, because if he is just, then how is that love? over sinners, right? And I've heard, uh, I can't remember who it was, but who who kind of, his argument back was like, well, God can do anything he wants to do. And so because of that, he doesn't need to be, have punishment for sin, or he doesn't need to hold anybody accountable for sin because he can just do anything he wants. He can just love without anything else attached to that love. And he can
1: just redefine justice whatever way he wants to. Yeah, he
0: can just just Whatever is just can just be whatever God wants it to be. But then at that point, there are absolutely no boundaries or parameters or even um, characteristics of God that we see very clearly laid out in Scripture. And if you understand Scripture is God showing us who he is, right? So we don't just, there's, um, what are the two phrases I've removed from seminary to too long now where like you general revelation and um special revelation special revelation yeah so general revelation is sure you can look out at um you know the trees and nature and see like wow like there's design here there's intentionality here like you can see god within those elements right but that is very general revelation where in the trees you're not seeing um salvation through christ you're seeing the the work of God, right? Like his creation, but you're not seeing uh, that special revelation, which is that Christ came to redeem and to save um, those who are lost. That is only revealed to us within scripture. Uh, and so then we're just throwing scripture out the window in many ways. And we're just wanting to only operate within some kind of a general revelation uh, when we start getting into the depths of uh, some of the progressive Christianity arguments.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the thing that makes kind of the progressive Christian movement so squishy is that it's so thoroughly postmodern. And what I mean by that is that it's moved from kind of the modern way of thinking to something else. So when, when you, you think about kind of modernism, really the, the uh, kind of guiding principle within uh, studying something or trying to arrive at truth is that we add up all of the facts. And the facts, when taken in whole, that is the truth. Now, that can be limiting and has been limiting. Um, we've seen it in so many ways. Even if you read, you know, theology books from 50 years ago, you think, well, wow, that's a, this is very much a modernist way of looking at this, where it kind of takes the Bible as, like, some sort of math equation um, and uh, really reads into it uh, modern assumptions onto a pre-modern text and, in, and does so in a way that's, like, really formulaic and doesn't quite get at the authorial intent of what was being written and... Uh, so the the postmodern movement, though, it, it the solution for them, they haven't seen it as, well, this modernist approach isn't quite getting us what truth is. So let's go back to what was the pre-modern reading of these texts and how were they received uh, prior to, like, the 20th century? Um, and how can we kind of get a, a fuller understanding of that context? Instead, it's like, okay, if the modernists say that all of the facts added together equal truth, what we're going to say is that... Truth is more important than facts. And so uh, the scholarship behind that is not trying to uh, derive th- what the, the authors of the text were intending to say, but rather importing whatever my uh, perspective is onto the text, where um, there, there's these two phrases, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is when you're trying to pull meaning out of the text and then apply it to yourself And eisegesis is when you're taking your own meaning and importing it into the text and then arriving at an interpretation based on that. And uh, the progressive Christian movement is thoroughly both postmodern and eisegetical. And so it's devoid from what were the authors of these texts actually trying to say. And I think when you do that, your authority structure is all wonky because we're all taking what we believe on authority from somebody and the authority that I'm taking it from is the 2000 years of unbroken tradition, um, as opposed to, um, the whims of what our postmodern world, uh, finds sensible or good or just.
0: Right. And essentially you're able to just look at scripture and take any, uh, like of your preconceived thoughts into the text rather than letting the text shape your thoughts and your mind. And, even Scripture itself, itself talks about, like, this renewing of your mind. And some of the benefits of Scripture are for teaching and correcting. And uh, is it, what, Timothy that lists—oh, gosh.
1: It's, I, I can't it remember it. which Timothy, but it's in there. But it says all it's, Scripture is yeah profitable for— uh, all the things that he says.
0: Yes. <laughs> I, I know I'm like quoting it, but obviously I don't know by heart. Uh, but it is talking about for teaching and for correcting. But if you're going to go into uh, reading the text and trying to have whatever your pre- preconceived notions are, and it just supports all of those things, then the text isn't actually doing what God had intended for it to do, which is to reshape and reframe and correct and teach our minds to think and operate um, after the ways of Jesus. And if you're going to the text and it's not actually correcting or teaching or even reframing anything that you already had in your mind, then you're just picking and choosing what it supports.
1: Yeah. And Brandon is making us sound like a couple of fundamentalists on this podcast. <laughs> That's true. Huh? I have never sounded more like a fundamentalist than when talking <laughs> about progressive Christianity. Well,
0: I think when it comes to, uh, just kind of throwing, and it's not even just tradition, right? Because then we start talking about like, <laughs> what was the whole like reformation based on, which was that <laughs> there are certain things that are higher than tradition, which is the word of God itself. Um, So we're not even just holding to the benefits of just tradition, but there is some great value to looking at the church fathers, the people who have come um, to the text and to the traditions long before we have, right? Um, And even just to uh, take everything you see and the history of the church and the history of um, like really good theologians who have contributed to the Christian faith uh, in massive amounts to just throw all of those people out the window, like I'm, there's some red flags being raised. Right. And especially he, he went to Moody Seminary. Um, and I think earlier you had a reference, like maybe he just didn't understand the way that the, uh, canon of scripture came to be. Like maybe he just didn't understand the authority of, uh, the way that we look at texts and say, like, this is authoritative because of its connection to Christ and the firsthand teachings. Like, I am so sure he knows all of that because he went to Moody Seminary. and He has must a- have
1: slept through that class because I'm sure that that was taught. Right. You can't graduate without taking that kind of a class.
0: Right. <laughs> so it's just uh, that's also some of the concern is um, not to say that the church has got it right. Every single time, and that there is no place for um, disagreement, but still following underneath the scope of yes, we can all call ourselves Christians, um, but there are some boundaries that are that are being stepped over within the the mindset of progressive Christianity.
1: Yeah, and that's so when we think about like the sola scriptura of the Reformation, um, it's often been like just so kind of. over exaggerated to the point where there's. I've heard this phrase as like any any person with uh, the Bible and the Holy Spirit can arrive at the truth. And I was like, well, they can arrive at truths, um, but not every reading of the text is going to be a good reading of the text uh, by that person who's doing that with no training, no guidance, no nothing. Um, because when we say when we look at the like uh, an interpretation of the text, what we're trying to do. Is if this text was authoritative in the first century, what we want to do is to understand what the author was trying to say at that time. And now we're separated by 2,000 years. We're separated by dead languages. We're separated by culture. We're separated by, you know, two millennia of history. And so um, what the the history of interpretation helps us with is say, okay, there was this authoritative thing, and that's the only thing that's authoritative. The traditions or the uh, historical interpretations are not authoritative. But when you look at a text and you say, okay, so Irenaeus in the mid-2nd century, he read this text this way. And then Augustine in like the, what, the 5th century, he read it the same way. And then in what, the 12th century, Thomas Aquinas, he read that text the exact same way. And then in the 16th century, Luther read that text the same way. And then in the 20th century, Tim Keller read that text the exact same way, which isn't to say that that's all correct, but if you're going to surmount an, uh, like an argument against that, It's gonna be gonna need to be like one whopper of an argument to say that everybody was been reading it wrong, and I finally unlocked what it's actually saying.
0: Right, and when you begin your argument with um, some very apparent errors or just um, blatant myths, truths like the argument began with uh, Jesus uh, and Paul did not know each other. Paul never met Jesus. He didn't hear uh, the gospel that he was sharing firsthand. That is just not truth.
1: It's like, dude, just read the The, New Testament. Like if you take it as authoritative. And
0: it's not only from Paul's mouth. So, okay, maybe we'll be like, well, Paul said that, but nobody else said that. We actually see affirmed.
1: But you see Peter taking Paul's words as authoritative. Yes. Yeah.
0: And then Luke is recounting exactly what happened to Paul And his conversion story and then how he played a pivotal role in growing the church and launching the church like that was out of Luke's writing. So you just see multiple places um, where it's all being affirmed and for Robinson to come out just outright and say uh, Paul never met Jesus like you're just already off to such a bad start because that's not true. It's hard to then take anything else from your argument. Um, when there are so many places that you are stating something that's just not true.
1: Right, because it's just mischaracterizing church history and, and the history of interpretation and uh, historical theology. It's throwing all of it out the window and saying yeah. none of that means anything. There's 2,000 years of unbroken tradition. Right. You can break with 2,000 years of tradition, but you need to say that that's what you're doing.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and you need to
1: make, a, a, just, again, just a, a whopper of a case in that direction, which when I've heard things not only from Robertson, but, you know, others like uh, Brian McLaren and other progressive Christians, it's just left wanting because it's not coming from a place of trying to find what the authors were saying. It's this eisegetical postmodernism that is reading our modern sensibilities into an ancient text and then making that authoritative.
0: Right. And there's later on, you'll end up sharing the full clip, but he actually ends up talking about like, look, Paul like had a few conflicts with uh, various people within the church and he actually went against the brother of Jesus. Like if you're going against the brother of Jesus, then we can't rely on you. But then he's just taking this like modern understanding of even just relationships and all of that and putting it back into the text as if that's some kind of a solid argument and it's not.
1: Well, yeah. I think what he was referring to was the book of James, which there was this whole uh, debate when at Nicaea in 325 when they were trying to figure – because they were going by like what uh, was written by uh, apostolic authority, uh, what um, has been immediately and continuously accepted as authoritative by the entire church from the time of its writing, and what is not contradicting other pieces within the canon. That's what the canon is. And there was a question between James – And Romans, because they took Romans as authoritative off the bat, but they're like, but James, because Jesus said, or because uh, uh, Paul said in Romans that it's by grace you're saved and not through your works. uh, But then James says that faith without works is dead. Are those contradictory? And they had this robust theological debate about it, and they decided, no, that those are not theologically at odds with one another. So James is not contradicting Paul. And therefore, it's in the canon.
0: Right. But uh, yes. But Robinson, in in this TikTok video, he just he removes all of that context and all of the nuance of that and just says, look, Paul went against James, who is the brother of Jesus. So how can we trust him?
1: Yeah. Which never happened which isn't, as such. Right. Yeah.
0: Like he, again, says it in just such this blatant way, like everybody knows this to be true uh, in the same way that Paul... Uh, never met Jesus, we all know that to be true, but there's just (laughs) error after error after error in his argument that um, it just becomes even more difficult to see uh, any ounce of truth within the argument.
1: Yeah, it's just not um, intellectually honest. Um, It's not academically rigorous. And it is not... Historically Christian.
0: Yes. I think what gets me kind of um, a little bit more passionate about this conversation is that the following that he has on TikTok is uh, pretty massive. And unfortunately, <laughs> this is the space in which uh, the younger generation is uh, receiving a lot of information and I'm not saying they're just blindly listening to it, but when he's I mean making, but a lot of them maybe are. so I right. mean
1: when you're seventeen years old and this guy sounds really smart. I mean he is really smart. Um, he and is, his argument seems so compelling. His
0: argument seems so compelling and so unless you know a little bit more, you might just take it at face value because he's he's making it sound as if like, well yeah, duh. Of course.
1: It's like Will Ferrell in that movie, the other guy says, (laughs) they were so convincing in their arguments.
0: Yeah, and if you don't know, and uh, this is the only, or one of the only places, a source of truth that you have, or information, even when it comes to scripture, uh, to say like, well, Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus, so he never knew Jesus, so we can't even take his words to be authoritative. Uh, All of that sounds like, Oh, okay, yeah, I like that makes sense, yeah, I can see how you got to that place, so now let's throw all of Paul's words out the window,
1: yeah, it the, just gets you to weird places It real gets quick. you
0: to weird places real quick, and the reason why I think I just get so like um, not frustrated, but just uh, I feel the weight of this conversation, knowing that um an entire generation is listening um. And truth needs to exist in these spaces as well Mm -hmm. when so much mistruth is existing. Um, I think in the same, maybe I'm going to like regret saying this, but I'm going to say it. In the same way that there's a lot of um, mistruths spread on Facebook for the generation that came before you and I,
1: I a think, lot. Yeah. They, think, they're tamping down, but they, there was a time where there was a Wild West out there. Well,
0: and it wasn't just, I mean, I know everybody says it within the political space, but it's actually within the theological space, too. I've had people send me videos, and I'm like, no. This, like, this is terrible. This is not true at all. Like, you're saying that the new translations completely remove Jesus, and now we need to be up in arms, but that's not actually what's happening. Anyways, uh, I think what we had seen happening— on Facebook for the generation that came before us is very similarly happening on TikTok for the generation that came after us.
1: Yes. In
0: yeah. in the way that we're receiving re- information, we're sharing posts, we're sharing videos, um, as if the people who are posting these things are speaking truth and they're, they're not.
1: And to be sure, there are some people on these platforms who are academically rigorous who are also sharing things. So it's like there's this sifting and sorting right. that needs to... Take place before we kind of bring it to a close. I wanted to uh, see if I can backtrack on something that I said earlier, or if we need to backtrack on it at all. Uh, and because um, there's this common accusation to to throw at people who deconstruct their Christian faith and reconstruct it into a different way, say like progressive Christianity. So when you look at um, uh, Brandon Robertson, you could say like that the accusation could be thrown at him. Well, because he's gay and he he didn't want to. Um, live under the traditional Christian sexual ethic, he de- deconstructed his entire theology just because he wanted to change his sexual ethic. And that is an accusation that is thrown about um, by a lot of conservatives. Uh, it's thrown at you know basically anybody who deconstructs uh, from evangelicalism or tries to deconstruct within evangelicalism. It's this argument that uh, it's just because you, you want to have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. Uh, in what regard is that argument or that accusation fair in certain instances and in what ways is it completely beside the point or unfair
0: to cast that out as just a blatant statement against anyone who is uh prescribing to progressive christianity i think that's not fair uh you can't just generalize people in such a way
1: i think it's also just as intellectually dishonest as even some of the things that robertson said <laughs> in that video you know what i mean it's right. not helpful
0: it's not helpful and then at that point, you're not actually seeking to understand anyone and how they came to a certain way of thinking and understanding something. You are just wanting to lob accusations at them. Um, now, maybe it might be true if you sit down and talk to somebody and you realize that the main reason uh, they have this view now is because primarily of um, the way of teaching sexuality, then maybe you can arrive at that. But you would need to sit down and talk to somebody. You can't just say all progressive Christians just want freedom to express their sexuality in any which way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's just a very unserious thing to do to look at someone... Uh, like Brandon Robertson, and say, "Well, he's just he, you know, he's saying that he's just saying that because he's gay." That's just such an unserious, unempathetic thing to say. Um, now Robertson's arguments I can dismiss almost der- like immediately out of hand. Um, not because he's gay, but because the arguments suck, and I think that they're not good <laughs> theological arguments. They're not. They're not based in any kind of historic Christian tradition that has nothing to do with the fact of whether he's gay or not, and so. Um, right, I think, I and first... there are people who are inerrantists, or not inerrantists, who take the authority of Scripture, but who would interpret Paul as saying something other than what he's saying when he's talking about homosexuality. And so they would mm-hmm. say, I believe in the authority of all Scripture, and um, God is okay with same-sex couples. I, I likewise think that that's not a very strong case to be made. But we have to address these arguments on, on the grounds in which they are being argued, and not just go ad hominem well he's just saying that because he's gay
0: right and when i first saw the tiktok video i did not know that he was gay um but i quite immediately refuted his arguments right (laughs) regardless of his sexuality in any way because what he is saying uh is just is not true
1: right yeah it's like we we don't even need to get to the question of sexuality before no, we're done with this conversation. No, because the
0: motivation of why he arrived there or whether it supports a lifestyle or not, it doesn't matter because particularly when we're looking at the argument he was making of Jesus against Paul and the reasons why we throw Paul out, the foundation of his argument is very wobbly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we could just take, it, it's good, sound advice to not attack a person, uh, but to attack their arguments. And in this case, it's important to attack these arguments because th- they are arguments that are placing someone outside Christianity, outside of Orthodox Christianity, um, which we think is a big deal, that when you're calling upon the name of Jesus and saying things that Jesus didn't say, mm-hmm. to the point that you're preaching a different gospel, right? this is the kind of thing that, that Paul was talking about in Galatians. If anyone comes preaching <laughs> another gospel, they're anathema. And well, so and that's irony, what we're seeing here.
0: The irony of accusing Paul of, preaching a different gospel than Jesus, but progressive Christians are, in fact, truly preaching, preaching a different, a different
1: gospel. gospel. Yeah. It's just, and we we need to be emphatic about that. Again, we sound like a couple of fundamentalists more than we normally do, uh, but we need to be uh, emphatic about that because, you know, on this podcast, we often talk about different ways to interpret the Bible on a number of different theological issues. And I actually tend to uh make people nervous because I'm typically more comfortable with a wider range of interpretive options than a lot of other Christians are who are maybe firmly nestled within a particular denomination or theological tradition. Um, you know, and a lot of my takes will get people to call me liberal or whatever. Um but I'm here to say that there is a world of difference between arriving at a different conclusion about what Paul was trying to say and saying what Paul said is irrelevant. Because what Paul said is absolutely Relevant, And so for Orthodox Christians, not Eastern Orthodox, but lowercase o Orthodox Christians, the Bible is authoritative. Like that's kind of one of our main things. Um, The writings of the Bible have been considered authoritative uh, since the moment they were written uh, by followers of Jesus. And so it's this, again, unbroken tradition uh, since the first century. And so we don't get to just throw that out because we disagree with something or, or or even because it takes a little bit of work to make this text reconcile with this text and take them all together to get this, you know, bigger theological vision. You know, that's just the, the work of good theology. And if we're unwilling to participate in that project, then really all we're left with are philosophizing and social activism. Now, those two things can be two good things. Um... But I believe that those things, when they aren't buttressed by biblical authority, um, they might be able to do some good in the world, but they can never be considered distinctly Christian.
2: A powerful
0: prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help